We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Ooh, Joan Lanto. Don Palumbo, that one felt pretty good. It was, it just, it, it never changes. Like, it's, oh. al- it's like, it's always, it's like, ooh. It's felt like the I best, just... the best intro read I ever did right there. That was the best one. Well, good. I'm so proud of you. Big shout out to everyone who has taken a few minutes out of their busy life to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. You can find Midwest Murder anywhere podcasts can be downloaded. And if you would be fabulous, our wonderful, dedicated listeners who we appreciate so much, Take a quick minute out of your day, jump onto iTunes, drop a five-star, leave a comment, and uh, maybe you'll get your review read here on the show. Don, I'm curious, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? This is one of my favorite parts. I, I love I love the reviews, the good ones and even the bad ones. Absolutely. Um, they're, they're my favorite, so we thank you. CorgiMum19, 710 of 21, said, My absolute favorite podcast. Midwest murder is our absolute favorite. My fiancé and, and myself love listening to the true stories of murder that take place in the Midwest. You both have a gift at telling the story in its true form. I love the work you both do. Keep up the good work. I would love to see you do more live shows as well. We would definitely attend. Well, thank you. Hey, so would we. And we, we would too. So stay tuned. <laughs> um, uh, S. Lundy, 87. Bingeworthy. I love a good history lesson of how dark the Midwest can be. I love how you preface every crime with what was popular in that time. Puts my mind in that time immediately. The nostalgia is great. I think the majority of podcast listeners want to feel like we are right there in the conversation. This podcast makes it very easy. Heck well, yeah. thank you. And that Thanks, was guys. that's our whole point, right? Like, you know, you want to step into the map, right? And, you know, understand what was going on at the time. Maybe what, you know, if anything led to it or, you know, whatever. I mean... I really like to think of it as we are sitting around a campfire and I'm about to tell you a scary story. And that's, that's just the, like, for me, it's kind of the vibe I get and, and setting that moment is, is, a, is a, is a big deal. So big, huge, huge thank you to all you guys. Yeah. Thank you very much. And we differ there, Jonah, because uh, nobody asks me to tell a story around a campfire. Nobody. Not one person. Been doing it, I've been doing it like my whole <laughs> life. So I, if I, if I, I get harassed by my kids when we go camping, like, dad, is it scary story time? And that was before yeah. I even liked or knew of or did any yeah. true crime, anything. Yeah. So yeah, big, and these are, these are scary stories, but they're real. They're which real. Is, makes it worse. Which right? even, which is even more scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, now yes. I don't tell scary stories around the campfire. I just make my kids listen to Midwest murder. (laughs) Jeez. Big shout out to our sponsor, the Minot's legendary truck stop and, um, uh, it's shots crossroads. We, we love them. The Midwest is not complete without a good, healthy truck stop. And ours again, very legendary. They've been part of North Dakota family for more than two generations and everything they do there is homemade. The ranch, the pies, 
the caramel rolls, more pie. It's homemade and it's amazing. Eight gallons of ranch a day over there. And my favorite thing on the menu, of course, chicken strips, crispy French fries. Give me a side of ranch. But if I'm really hungry, I also want like a number 88 and, and Don's going to order a burger and I'm going to eat part of her burger. We're going to, we're going to share bites because it's, it's a full service menu. 24 hours a day. So I like the idea you can go there at any time of the day and get a little bit of everything that you might want. I like that. I like the idea of like, there's like four of us. We could all offset what we order. So it complements what we get. I know you're not into that. I think you overestimate my, I like it. I think I, I think you overestimate my, uh, you don't want to share your shots. My care and concern for you. No, I don't want to share. No, unless I get, as long as I get to have my own, my own ranch and gravy. We all get our own trough of ranch and gravy okay. I will at think Shots about it Crossroad. I will think about it. And uh, I saw recently one of our listeners shout out, you guys ordered online ahead of time <gasps> awesome, and, yeah. and thanked him for being uh, Midwest Murder supporters. That's pretty cool. And again, something really easy these days. Back in my day at the truck stop, I played pinball and my, my grandma and my mom ordered everything and they called me in when it was finally ready. Uh, these days, you can call ahead online or just order online and, and order in advance. Pay when you get there. They text you when it's ready. It's awesome. It's convenient. It's Shots Crossroads right here in Minot. Also, a big thanks to Pop and Dot Design and Fabrication, formerly known as Nomad Design House. Yes. For those of you who are wondering, they made uh, she made our excellent logo, the Midwest Murder logo, again, by Pop and Dot Design, capable of... Uh, Graphic design, all your graphic design needs. Check them out. CJ Wynn for her help on the haunting and truthful intro. And to Eric Michael Anderson, along with his parents, the doctors, Eric and Diana Anderson, for our bone chilling theme music. Woo. Thank you. We appreciate all you guys. Yes. Today, on Midwest Murder, we're traveling back to 2003. The space shuttle Columbia that well, year disintegrated. Actually, we're staying in 2003. We're we, know, we didn't leave we didn't 2003 leave. from the last episode. We're going to stay in 2003. Are we still in 2003? We're going to remain in 2003. Whoa. Yeah. I would yeah. I would not have made that connection. Yeah. Um but of course the space shuttle Columbia disintegrates over Texas upon re-entry sadly killing all seven astronauts on board. Space is freaking scary. The United States is planning for an invasion of Iraq due to the imminent threat from weapons of mass destruction, air quotes all over that. Voters in California, they like to recall their governors there. It seems like it happens a lot on the West Coast. Voters in California recall Governor Gray Davis. Don't you remember? And he when left. I said, when, I said, when I, when I, uh, when I, I used my dad joke and I said it was a total recall. It was a total recall. <laughs> oh my, of course. <laughs> Because I'm should, only funny in Dickinson. You should have given me a heads up. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have reused that one. You should. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's, okay. it's what See, was happening. It's it's what was happening. It was important, and maybe maybe it is important. Remember. Also, yeah. I think the most important thing that happened this year it was three films coming, and everybody knew it was the right thing that had to happen. Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King won eleven Oscars. It won everything. Best picture, best director, song, visual effects, costume design, you name it. Editing. It was so, so, so amazing. And it was well-deserved after the first two films. Congrats, Peter Jackson, on that. I love Lord of the Rings. I just rewatched those movies pretty recently with my kids. They love them. The only way to go is the director's cut. In 2003, also, uh, the most legendary basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, retired. He is the GOAT. I know a lot of people argue these days about maybe maybe it's Kobe now, maybe it's LeBron, but it's always going to be MJ, baby. I'm sorry, you can't change my mind. You can't. Mm-mm. 
Some things are open for debate. This one is not. <laughs> him and him and Tom Brady, I, they, they're just you, you can't you can't beat them. Sorry. The most popular TV shows in 2003: CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. I think that was before there was 17 million variations of CSI. You just had the one, right? And, and it had the Doobie Brothers, I think, intro music, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, American Idol right behind CSI. Oh, and you guys, just in case you didn't know, CSI is not real. That's not really so how, how it works. Things, if you're listening have... to this, you probably know that. <laughs> they never though. seem to I'd have like any to lights. Think. I'd like to yeah. think. And finally, 50 Cent's In the Club was I... the number one song of the year. I think everyone's lucky that I'm not going to sing that, or if you will. People call the Midwest flyover country. The place you simply pass through or fly over when you're getting from the excitement and glamour of one coast to the other. Those who merely pass through or fly over are, are often comment on the patchwork quilt appearance of the landscape of quarter section farms bordered by county roads, knotted here and there by tiny towns and small cities. If the flyover people would slow down and look a little closer, they'd see another kind of patchwork, one that New York Times journalist Walter Kern calls, quote, a patchwork of failed institutions and aspirations. There's the hospital, groaning under a load of uninsured patients with minimum wage jobs and maxed out household budgets. There's this school, imperiled by dwindling tax receipts and students with ever more grown-up problems. And there, on a street in a district of drab houses not far from the faltering central business district, is a passel of latter-day Tom Sawyers on bikes, riding along, not for the summertime heck of it, but to shake up batches of low-grade speed contained in plastic soda jugs lashed to their back fenders. What? That, you know, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a take on the aspects of America's heartland there, buddy. Uh, oh, I, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. Wow. That low grade speed is methamphetamine. And for decades, it's been at the heart of a vicious cycle plaguing the Midwest. As family farms lose out to corporate agribusiness, the gap between rich and poor increases. And as the rich get richer and often disappear from flyover country, leaving for those exciting and glamorous coasts where they run their agribusiness, no care or concern for the actual communities where the work gets done, the poor get poorer. And poverty and meth often go hand in hand. Agribusiness doesn't just mean no more family farms, it also means factory work, stockyards, meat processing plants, and synth fuel plants. And factory work is grueling, monotonous. All too often, factory workers turn to drugs like meth as an escape. Likewise, the crippling boredom of unemployment exacerbated by life in small towns with few cultural or entertainment options can make people turn to drugs, especially cheap readily available meth. Methamphetamine was first synthesized in a Japanese chemistry lab in 1919. Meth is a powerful stimulant. It increases wakefulness and physical activity. It also decreases appetite. During World War II, meth was used by soldiers to stay awake and increase productivity. In the 1960s, it became popular with athletes, college students, biker gangs, and truck drivers. Meth also produces 
a seductive euphoria. It releases very high levels of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the reward circuit of the brain, which teaches the brain to repeatedly seek out the pleasurable experience of taking the drug. Because of this, meth is highly addictive. Meth can also cause anxiety, confusion, insomnia, paranoia, hallucinations, and delusions, intense itching, extreme weight loss, bone disease, muscle atrophy, and severe dental problems. Those in the, those in the, in the biz refer to that as meth mouth. You, I guess you could say there's a downside. It, I don't think it's all sunshine and roses, you guys. And perhaps most devastatingly, meth is pretty easy to make. Its primary ingredient, ephedrine, is available over-the-counter in cold medicines. Now, this is especially true when our story takes place back in 2003, which was before the 2006 federal law that limited the sale of over-the-counter cold medicines. Yeah, if you tried to go buy ephedrine right now, there's no way. Like, it, it's your name's on a list. Yeah, you're getting ID'd, yeah. you, there's a limit. The rest of its ingredients are often household products like battery acid, brake fluid, drain cleaner, nail polish remover, paint thinner, fertilizer, lye, and antifreeze. While Sounds delicious. drug cartels, organized crime, and other large operators are involved in the production of meth, the vast majority of it is made by individuals or small groups of people, and it's made at home. All it takes is a vicious mixture of the cold medicine, water, and some combination of the household products and the heat source to cook it on. We commonly refer to them or hear of them as meth labs, but there's nothing scientific or sterile or professional about them. Meth labs are often just someone's kitchen or abandoned houses or old buildings. In fact, the high rate of meth use and meth production in the Midwest have a common root. The invasion of agribusiness left not only high unemployment or low-paying, backbreaking drudge work in factories and feedlots and slaughterhouses, but also an abundance of abandoned farmhouses, barns, and outbuildings left behind with the collapse of the family farm. These abandoned buildings in underpopulated rural areas become perfect sites for meth labs. Well, and I think other farmers become targets, I guess, if you will, you know, too, with their anhydrous tanks and stuff like that, because anhydrous is huge. So if you're, I mean, that's also why it was prevalent in the, in the Midwest. If you're a methapreneur and you're looking for a place to set up shop, mm -hmm. you see some old farmer guy or something, I, I don't know well, what's, the, what's but, to stop a, it's... But then you also steal, or, you steal their anhydrous. Or you steal their anhydrous. Yeah. Or you, you get them in bed with you. Yeah, that too. In 2003, the year our murder takes place, there were 21,080 meth lab incidents in America. Meth production and consumption is especially prevalent in the Midwest. Six out of the top 10 states in the United States for both methamphetamine production and consumption are in the Midwest. We're not only corn fed here. Yeah. We like easy and drugs. While North Dakota is not among those top six states, meth was a rapidly growing problem in North Dakota in the late 90s and early 2000s when this story takes place. Some examples. North Dakota. 
the amount of methamphetamine seized by the Mandan Police Department increased dramatically from 14.2 grams in 1993 to 3,402 grams in 2000. Again, 14 grams they got in 1993 to 3,400 grams of meth seven years later. I call that a classic working of supply and demand. Methamphetamine-related investigations increased throughout North Dakota from 48 in 1995 to 119 in 1999. Arrests increased from 24 in 95 to 116 in 1999. The North Dakota Crime Lab reported an overall increase of methamphetamine samples submitted for analysis, 14 samples in 92, 1,218 samples in 2000. That's insane. Yes. It's it's, it's, it's hard to fathom. Final nail in the coffin here. Seizures of methamphetamine laboratories in North Dakota increased overall. Labs overall increased from five in 1998 to 46 in the year 2000. Of the 46 laboratories seized in 2000 by, by the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation, BCI, we talk about them a lot here, 22 of those were located in rural areas 17 in urban areas and seven in small towns. If I'm if I'm doing my math right, and I don't math well, but if I'm doing we my math We don't math, we tell stories. We tell stories. So I'm not a mathematician ever, and I will never claim to be. I think that's eight hundred percent. I don't know the percentages by any measure, but that's in a two year span from ninety eight to two thousand and went from Wait, five to forty six. It's sure. certainly a nine time it, it, it's a nine nine times the, the amount. So Let's, it's crazy. We'll, we'll just say Go that. There. Just say that. Somebody else do the math. Let us know what and it is. Perhaps most significant for our story is the fact that methamphetamine abusers can be violent and endanger themselves as well as those around them. Well, they lose their mind. They they Literally. It affects the brain. Yeah. yeah. It some estimates connect meth use to nearly twenty percent of violent crime committed in America. One in five violent crimes connected to methamphetamines. Valley City, North Dakota, like so many Midwestern small cities, is not immune to the meth epidemic. And this is the story of five ordinary people whose lives went straight to hell Ooh. all because of meth. Ooh. Oh. Oh. I, don't like, I don't like that. Daniel Jansen, known around Valley City by the nickname Scrubby, is pretty well known and well liked around town. He's known as a, as a hunter, a gun collector. He has a nice circle of friends and enjoys a pretty typical North Dakota lifestyle. Fishing, hanging out with the guys. But when he buys a local bar, the paddock, things start to change for Scrubby. Maybe the bar was frequented by meth heads. Maybe it's just one of the perils of the service industry and third shift life. Maybe it's the girl he started dating who worked there for him, Sharon Hatcher. But it's as a bar owner that Scrubby becomes a meth user. And once Scrubby goes down the dangerous path of meth use... It's all but impossible for him to get off it. I really want to know how he got the name Scrubby. I could have probably found out. I know that I know it's not relevant to the story whatsoever, no, but I always question. I always want to know these people get these nicknames that stick. How does it happen? Like Scrubby. 
I, I've nicknamed a lot of people and I've heard them all, all the people I know with nicknames get asked, well, how'd you get yeah, that nickname? Right. Huh, my weird friend, Jonah. As Scrubby becomes more and more dependent upon meth, his circle of friends changes. Gone are the hunting and fishing buddies. Now he spends a lot of his time with other meth heads and meth begins to undermine the productive life he'd been living. Two people figure prominently in Jansen's new life. Sharon Hatcher and her teenage daughter, April. Sharon and Jansen have an on-again, off-again romantic relationship, and teenage April becomes something of a thorn in Jansen's side. Both Sharon's and April's lives are messy, and meth adds desperation to the untidiness. According to various reports, April rarely attends school, and when she does go, she's high. She has several run-ins with local law enforcement, and social services are notified on more than one occasion. But time and time again, no serious actions are taken to protect April or to remove her from dangerous situations. Sharon runs with a rough crowd, and there seem to be several dubious financial situations in her life. There are issues with workers' compensation and disability, Accusations of financial fraud, child support complaints, accusations of slander and theft, drug abuse, as well as drug overdoses, meth addicted and with no real support system. Sharon attempts suicide four times over two years. Oftentimes, meth addicts participate in mutually parasitic relationships. And Sharon and Jansen's relationship is certainly one of these. It's as simple as this. Meth can make you crazy and violent. Add that to an already difficult relationship and trouble's bound to ensue. For years, resentment, frustration, and agitation builds between Sharon and Jansen. It builds and boils and festers until one afternoon, April 15th, 2003, when a clerk at the local Senex C store overhears Daniel Jansen say, today looks like, quote, a good day to kill someone. For those of you not in the Midwest who are not familiar with Senex, you know, on the East Coast, it might be like a Sheets and C stores, you know, convenience store. Absolutely. Right? Little, little corner store. Welcome to they the They sell little pizzas there, mm-hmm. sodas. Hot stuff pizza. Yeah, hot stuff pizza. You'll find that a lot of these ones. Yeah, and a pizza. While Jansen is at the Cenex, Sharon, her 16-year-old daughter April, and her boyfriend Michael Barnett are at Sharon's mobile home in the Viking Drive Estates trailer park. They're using meth and getting high while breaking up the meth into smaller portions for sale on the black market. Generally, it's separated into half, half gram to full gram bags, which sell for anywhere between fifty to two hundred dollars. Sitting around, hanging out, using drugs, and packaging them. This is a pretty normal day for this group of meth heads. Michael and April are chilling on the couch. They're high. They're enjoying the fruits of their labor. Around 5.30 p.m., Paul Bucholtz arrives at the mobile home. He wants Sharon to work for him at his bar in nearby Ariska. Sharon tells him that she can't because she's been called into work at her other job. Sharon's getting ready for work, but... There's plenty of time yet to get high. She and Paul sit down together at the kitchen table and pass the meth pipe back and forth. Daniel Jansen, 
is living in another trailer in the Viking Drive estates. And although he and Sharon are not currently dating, Daniel's possessive of her and jealous of other men in her life. Okay, right, because she's not... It was Michael Barnett that she's packaging up. April, April. So it's her daughter, Michael Barnett, and I think they're all probably participating in the packaging of of it. Gotcha, okay. I I don't know for sure if Buchholz, he arrives later. But but this is an off time for Daniel and Sharon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. It's kind of okay. a, a very on again, off again relationship. There doesn't oh. seem to be any indication she's dating Paul, but Jansen, pretty jealous, doesn't like when other dudes are sure. around. And I mean, drug use knows no boundaries. Absolutely. You know? uh, it, it really but contributes the, to level, a lot of paranoia. At this level. It'll yeah. contribute to a ton, a ton of paranoia for sure. Well, it's not, it's not just, it's not just the meth use that does it. It's the other things that you don't put into your body when you're using right, meth. It's the lack right. of nutrition, right. right? It's truly, it's a lack of nutrition. It's a lack of hydration. It's yeah. a lack of sleep. It's, 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 it's inhaling like, and hydrous. Like, I mean, right. it's, it's affecting all of you. Uh, yeah. The lack of sleep one, is another big thing. Like, holy smokes. One, one could argue if, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you, if, if a person was sleeping and eating and still using meth, you might not ever get, catch them. You know, you might not ever know. They might be able to get away with that because they're doing it like, quote, normally. But when you're staying up and, and, and yeah. all this, it, it leads to a whole new level of weirdness and craziness and paranoia. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, uh, yeah. So Sharon and Paul, as I said, they don't, they don't have a romantic relationship, but approaching Sharon's trailer, Daniel sees Paul's truck parked out front. It's actually an El Camino and a jealous rage boils up in him. Quote, I'm not crazy. He will later say, I just snapped. Sharon and Paul, April and Michael, all high on meth and expecting nothing other than an ordinary wasted night, have no idea what's coming for them from outside the trailer at number 52 Viking Drive that April evening. Oh boy. Without warning, Daniel Jansen, like an ill wind blowing hard across a bleak prairie landscape, comes flying through the front door, surprising everyone in the tiny trailer. Jansen first turns his attention to Paul Buchholz. He pulls a 9mm Desert Eagle handgun out of his jacket and aims it at Paul. Sharon says, Don't worry, he ain't gonna do nothing. Jansen growls at her in response, Remember what I told you? Then shoots Paul Buchholz at close range, the bullet lodging in his belly, knocking him back in the chair. Paul falls to the floor and essentially plays dead, lying in a gathering pool of his own blood. Quote, I got blown off the chair, he later tells law enforcement. I was lying there, and he stood over me like he was going to shoot me in the head. When the deafening gunshot rings out and Paul hits the floor, survival instincts kick in for April. She screams and runs to her mother. The two women flee down the hall, terrified of what may come next. Leaving Bugaltz for dead, Jansen turns his rage toward the fleeing women. Michael Barnett springs off the couch, but Jansen is ready. Bam! He fires a shot into Barnett's chest and advances down the hallway. Bam, bam, Jansen fires two more shots in pursuit of the women. The fleeing women run down the hallway and lock themselves in the tiny bathroom of the trailer house. All they can do now is hide and pray. Sadly, the flimsy trailer house bathroom door isn't enough to stop the wrath of Jansen. 
And, that, and his nine millimeter Desert Eagle. Yeah, I mean, because that's a, I mean, I think a Desert Eagle is, that's a weapon to be wielding, right? It, so this is a baby Desert Eagle, okay, they call okay. it, and that's why I, that's I why had to like look it up because yeah. I thought they were using incorrect terminology, sure. calling it a nine millimeter Desert Eagle. I'm not a big gun dude, but I had never heard of a nine millimeter Desert Eagle. Like, it's actually kind of like a, I think was like a limited edition thing, Jansen being a, a gun collector. Uh, but that's what he had. Yeah, so, it, like Desert Eagle, I think isn't isn't it? I, I, I'm like a forty-five. Most meter? of not this no. one. No, this okay. is a, but most, typically, yes, typically it's okay. a high caliber magnum. Yeah, yeah. It's a high large magnum right. round. Right. Okay. This is a nine millimeter Desert Eagle. Okay. It's called a baby Desert the ba- Eagle. The baby Desert. Okay. Okay. Bam, bam. Jansen fires two shots through the door. Jansen presses into the bathroom and fires five more shots point blank at Sharon and April. Believing both women to be dead, Jansen scrambles out to the kitchen, intent on finishing what he started with Paul Buchholz. But that opportunity no longer exists. While Jansen is firing relentlessly into the bodies of Sharon and April Hatcher, Paul Buchholz makes a brazen escape from the trailer. Bleeding badly, he hauls himself up off the floor and staggers out the door and into his El Camino parked out front. As he guns the engine and peels out in the yard, Jansen empties the clip of his Desert Eagle into the vehicle. The back window of the truck explodes, raining glass all over. One bullet pierces the front windshield right next to Buchholz's head, just inches below the rear view mirror. Law enforcement will later find a bullet that bounced off the El Camino, lodged in the front door of the trailer across the street. Holy cats. Like he meant business. I mean, he was... 15 rounds in the clip, he emptied them all, the last three shots into the El Camino. Moments later, Buchholz is driving erratically and at high speed. Estimates peg him at 50 miles an hour down Valley City's Main Street in an attempt to get himself to the hospital. It's a valiant and adrenaline-fueled attempt, but it's not enough. Blood loss and a penetrating bullet wound are more than Buchholz's body can withstand, and he blacks out, drifting into oncoming traffic, ultimately smashing the El Camino into a light pole. Can you be? Can you imagine being the emergency personnel on scene first? You know, you'd think this guy might be drunk. He might be having a diabetic, co- you know, in a diabetic reaction so of some sort. Things. You know, just like weaving into traffic, and then you know, being that oncoming traffic and seeing that happening, and so you just expect to either be you know, sending this guy for a blood drop for a DUI or, you know, figuring his insulin out. But there's a hole in his stomach. Like, I mean, can and, you imagine seeing that? Like, And this you know? is just after 6 p.m. So this is, I wouldn't say busy because it's Valley City. It's not massive, but it's an active time it's, it's in active. this small and, at town. Any time, there's you the, know, a ton at of people. Town. A ton of people saw it. Businesses are still open. Uh, I think it was like right down Main Street. It's, yeah. Hmm. Having spent his meth-fueled fury, Jansen flees the scene. Witnesses make Jansen walking east toward the trailer, number 35, the residence of Dean Wainegrud, where Jansen is staying. He's holding the gun and mutters to no one in particular, quote, I'm in big trouble. Jansen then takes off in his blue over silver Chevy S10 pickup. Left for dead? The badly wounded Michael Barnett manages to make his way to the trailer across the street from Hatcher's, the very one where the bullet that glanced off the El Camino lodged in the door. 
He bangs on the door and Trisha Wade opens it to find the crouched and bleeding Barnett on her front steps. She drags him into the house and asks who shot him. Scrubby, he replies, clear as day. Wade then calls 911, bringing Valley City Police and emergency personnel in number to the meth-fueled nightmare in the Viking Drive Estates trailer park. I, wow, can you imagine? I mean, crawling, like pulling yourself over to the mobile home across the, across the street, being that neighbor, right, yeah. that, oh, that sees it. Oof, yikes. And... You know, and people and heard it. Like, and people are poking their heads right. out. It's, well, and and people can say whatever they want about I'm like, well, a bunch of drug users. You know, they, this is what this is what happens. No, no, nobody, nobody deserves this. No. You know, and and they still they're still human beings. So regardless of what they're caught up in, they're still human beings. So absolutely, among the first on scene is EMT Leslie Worrell. Upon first entering the trailer, she sees blood all over the steps. There's blood on the storm door and a giant smear of blood on the inside of the screen. When Worrell passes the threshold into the trailer, she notices more blood on the floor. It's even splattered on the birdcage hanging near the entry. Spent shell casings litter the floor of the trailer. A carpet runner is saturated in blood. In the dining room, a chair is tipped over with puddles of blood under it. Worrell follows a trail of spent shell casings down the hallway, leading her to discover the awful carnage in the bathroom. I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this. And I'm. (laughs) She pushes frantically on the bathroom door, but something, some dead weight is blocking it. She cracks the door open just enough to peek her head inside. She sees two female bodies sprawled in the tiny cramped bathroom, bleeding. Covered in blood. The body blocking the bathroom door is that of Sharon Hatcher. She's covered in blood. Her eyes are open and she's clutching a cordless phone. Wow. Oh my gosh. Like she's, and she's, she's there with her daughter. Like she tried. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Worrell squeezes through the barely open door and crawls over the sink in her efforts to get to the victims bleeding on the floor. I, I can't, I can't, I cannot imagine. I've already read this, and it's just so emotional doing it here with you. I know. I'm I'm sorry, buddy. Like, Looking this is... for any signs of life, Worrell first rolls the body of Sharon Hatcher and uses the scissors to remove clothing and expose her chest. There are no obvious signs of respiratory function. Large clots of blood cover the side of Hatcher's chest. Worrell notices entry wounds on both sides of Sharon's chest. Worrell grabs a towel from the counter to clean off some blood and get a dry surface surface to check for signs of life using a heart monitor. Or an AED. Her rescue efforts are heroic, but ultimately they are for naught. Worrell calls for assistance, and law enforcement comes to help her put Sharon on a backboard and remove her to the kitchen where she is declared dead on the scene. The scene in the bathroom is grim. The room is covered in blood and riddled with bullet holes. Shards of glass and of the toilet bowl, which had partially shattered upon impact from from a bullet, are all over the room. Working desperately, Worrell rolls April and removes her clothing to expose her chest. The heart monitor tells Worrell that April is barely hanging on to life. Her heart is beating at just 38 beats per minute. Worrell calls for help. There's still a chance to save April. Oh my gosh. Like, I I just, like, I know I keep saying it, but it's just like, can you, the, the scene in there, you know, the, the shards of, of porcelain, you know, the, 
and then you've got you've got Scrubby or whatever his name is that is he goes to some dude's house and is like I'm in trouble. Well, do you he, think man, so? He fled, he fled the scene. Do yeah, you think so? And just look at have you ever been in you know trailer bathrooms are small. They're small, like mm-hmm. even smaller than a lot of apartment bathrooms. Yep, and they're she small. had to crawl up onto the sink because you the door is right next to the yeah, sink when yeah. you open that trailer. Yeah, it's, if if the door were like an inch over, it wouldn't open, right? Yeah. Like I mean, it it would scrape the side. Yeah, I can I can I can picture it. Detective McDonald responds to Worrell's calls for help with CPR. He initiates chest compressions as Worrell ventilates April with a BVM, that's a bag valve mask. April's placed on a backboard and moved down the hallway. Resuscitation efforts continue. She's lifted into the ambulance, still with a chance at life, and transported to Mercy Hospital in Valley City. Well, did she make it? I suppose we're going to get there. We will get there. What what about... what about uh, Barnett? Yeah, what about Barnett? What about... um, They both make it to the hospital. Okay, and then... Police arrive on scene. And El Camino guy. Uh, Forgive me, I've already forgotten his name. That was Bukoltz. Bukoltz, yeah. So Paul. He he gets gets picked up, as it were. Not picked up, but but taken... taken EMTs respond to his scene. He gets taken in there. The grisly search of that Hatcher residence which started just after 6 p.m. when the first call to police came in, was completed by approximately 3.05 a.m. That's they, a shift. Yep. Viking because, oh. drive estates. They canvassed everything. Numerous witnesses make an alleged Jansen as the killer. Michael Barnett died later that night at <sighs> Merritt Care in Fargo. April Hatcher was declared dead not long after her arrival to the ER at Valley City Hospital. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a tragedy! And I, I, again, you know, nobody, nobody deserves this. Not this. Not like this. No. On April sixteenth, law enforcement processes the El Camino. They get warrants to search Jansen's financial records as well as several storage units rented by Jansen. In one storage unit, agents seize seventy-six guns. So, as I mentioned, this guy was a gun collector. A lot of them were actually rare. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. So April 16th. This is April 16th. The following day. The following day. This is right. The following day. They're processing. They're going through it. So murder. the murders occurred well, okay, 6 p.m. Okay, on hold the 15th. On, hold on. I mean, it is a small department. It's a small department, right? Probably not a lot of, probably he, not a lot of, uh, you know, but are they looking for him? Are oh, they, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. They, he's, they, he's, he's, he's but on they're, the they're run. But they're going into the, the several storage units the next day? The very I next mean, day. Yeah. You know, what about what about financial records? I mean, you know, a, a, a judge is going to sign a warrant right well, away. Yeah, they got the financial records right away to see if they could track him Where to he any was. purchases. But this yep. is the next day. Yeah. I don't it feels a little slow to me, but I'm a little spicy today. To process the El Camino? So, no, I mean, to, they to, process, get to, the, to get to the financial records and the storage units? Well, you can't really I don't think you can get there that same night. They're processing the well, murder 6 scene. PM, I suppose, they're, but they're 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 they had Dozens of witnesses from the trailer. Then you got the mess with Buchholz downtown and all the witnesses who right, saw but, that. But at there's this point, a big team that responded to this. But at this point, it's they all don't, hands on deck. Well, I, it should be, you know. But at this point, you know, there are four people that are, 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 you know, three that are massacred. One that you know nearly died on the way to the hospital as he's driving himself, and you know, thankfully just played dead. Otherwise, he would have been. He would have been right. Dead. You're gonna. You don't know at this point if he's a public threat. 
You don't know that. Oh, yeah, though no, they didn't. The, so part of that, the hospital was declared on lockdown. For they sure. They put the hospital on lockdown. Yeah, there were, there were, the whole town is buzzing with this information and quick. Okay. There were, I, there, there was a, the, I didn't put those details in for the story, but there was like another family who allegedly Scrubby was, was dating some dude's, uh, some other dude's wife and was going to kill that guy. And, and so they, they removed those people to a hotel because they okay. didn't know where he was. Okay. okay. All yeah. Right. Oh yeah. And, right. and he, he's on the loose out into the country. It's nighttime. It's winter. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to process with sure. all of, with all sure. of this. And three o'clock in the morning, they finished the Hatcher residence and they were like, man, we'll, we'll get the El Camino in the morning. I'm not, I'm not worried about, yeah. I'm and not saying the, the, the I'm, stuff, yeah. I'm talking about finding this fella. I'm talking about finding Scrubby. You know, I'm not saying they probably stopped and just went to bed and be like, oh, well, that's it for a day's work. That's not, I mean, I don't think that, you know, but it's maybe I'm being a little too CSI here. Maybe, uh, it, it's, it's fair questions. So he, he flee, he had fled the scene. Scrubby had several storage units around town. Like he had like three of them, one that was above like an old bar and a couple of other ones. So they like, you know, they, they search all these. Right. But are they looking for him there? Are they, they did not expect to find him in those places. Okay. That's they, they did not expect that. I really don't know why I'm hung up on this, but I am. Yeah. We can move on. I'm sorry. On April, also on April 16th, BCI agents made contact with Dean Wainegrud where in number trailer 30, trailer number 35 at Viking Drive, that's where Jansen had been staying. They don't recover a whole lot from Scrubby's place of re- residence. Some mail, some old records from the paddock lounge, clothes, and a letter. It's a typed up letter. Oh boy. Found in his, uh, in, in, in his top drawer of, of but- his bedroom. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. And it's type it's typed out. It's 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 typed out. And here's what it says. I'm going to read it verbatim. Paraphernalia, DEA bus last summer, a pipe found in April's room. Her friend took the rap, Sharon's home. Why was she not charged? And a few trailers away, Ron Rogers did. Next bullet point, broken curfew, still goes out with Cassandra and at Trista's. Bullet point. Homeschool. Why? Who authorized this? What tests are done or required and by whom? Bullet point. Car accident last May or June. No license. No probation or anything. Why not? She was barely 14. Bullet point. Restraint order against Cassandra Sherbert. Because April slept with her husband, Paul. The cops were called several times. Bullet point. School schoolmates have been talking about how raggy, strung out, and tired looking she was. Stays up all night. Too tired to go to school. Boyfriend is 23 years old and has lived there since last June. She was only barely 14. He still lives there. Now he works at the paddock. Sharon never reported Travis living there last year. Never reported his wages. Worked since October of 2001. Cassandra Vogel also lived there from May to September, and she never reported this either. Bullet point. Several reports made to social services and the police department. Not a thing has been done. Why? It is not right to have a 23-year-old sleeping with a 14-year-old. Officer McDonald told Jody last week they can't investigate April because she's a minor, and Sharon said no. What a joke. Bullet point. April is known to sleep around with older and some married men. Paul Sherbert, Jason Cross, Mark Stockard, Corey Almclov, 
She hung steady with Maggie Lang and Trista Steinhaus. They were on probation and watched very closely. Only one in the group not on probation was April. Why? She is a known pot smoker and user. Bullet point. So many people in the community are saying this is enough. It's obvious officials are not doing their jobs. Very biased. A lot of us are sick of this. Unfair, unjust hearings, harassment, etc. Bullet point. If jobs aren't done and word leaks out, we will file a motion with the state for the investigation of city and county officials. Bullet point. Several reports of illegal activity at a place next door has gone unsearched, yet dig in the garbage. How did Paddock know a day ahead that bars would be watched? So much goes unnoticed. Obviously, somebody's doing illegal things. This will be taken up elsewhere. We want some fair justice, honesty. Without this, it is discrimination as other legal areas seem to agree. What? There's a little more. Oh, Hang boy. on. Next bullet point. Check Sharon's income tax records compared to what's reported to social services and child support. Bullet point. Sharon has been sleeping with Paul the owner of Helmers, Scrubby, who runs the paddock, Jim from Jamestown, who was in prison for child molestation. Complaint made to Workman's Comp and Minnesota Life Insurance Company because Sharon received payments from both of the direct deposits to Jamestown Community Credit Union. Plus, Don was making the house payments to her trailer also, triple payments on the trailer house. Fraud. Her lawsuit papers state she works full-time at the paddock and lives there. Her workers' comp and disability checks say she lived at my address, Dawn, where I lived and was unemployed due to an injury. I have copies. Why no charges? April lied on a sworn affidavit against Kristen Clubbin. Cops know it. Want her prosecuted for fraud. File a claim against Sharon for back child support for October 2000 through June 2001 for April. Unfair bias hearing in small claims court. Also slander and theft. Sharon has tried to commit suicide four times in the past two years. Nitro pills two times. OD on meth and booze at the paddock. She cut her wrist and I fixed it. She had a DUI. Why no action taken? Her son had Scrubby reported once for being unbalanced and stated that drugs were a problem the last time she was at the hospital. So this is not written by Scrubby. No, Excuse you can tell. Me. Yeah. So who- This is, was found in his dresser though okay so who wrote the letter so in reading this again there's this bullet point here where it says her workers comp and disability checks say she lived at my address and in parentheses that says it's dawn where i lived and was unemployed due to an injury who's who's dawn not sure somebody involved in whatever mess these whatever methy mess these people were involved in this is what Don put on this. So everything that D-A-W-N was... D-A-W-N or D-A-W-N? D-A-W-N. Okay. So like everything that was said in that letter is not evidence, but it was seized as evidence in the case, uh, in, in Scrub- the, Scrubby's the house. The letter was seized as evidence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, I- small town secrets. Small weird, town secrets. A lot of weird small town rumors and secrets there. So if she gets a DUI, she gets... She's an informant. She might, maybe she she's is. An informant. If she's if she's getting if she's getting charges, but not not serving them, or you know, not getting anything from them, and who knows? We can't believe Don. I mean, it's a letter, no. you know. But that's if, if that's interesting. If that's happening, I hadn't even that didn't even cross my mind. Don, she's she's got to be an informant, or or, or not got to be, but there's a good good damn possibility. And in the in the in the drug world, it there are informant there are informants everywhere. Yeah, it's it's 
it, it's some really there's some really sad information in there too yeah. uh, about the way the uh, Hatcher family was living yeah. their life. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's, I mean, it's really tragic, and that that was an interesting piece of of evidence. Anyways, again, none of it used ultimately in the case, but it was there and it was submitted. I found it to be interesting. So that kid didn't here. have a chance. No, she didn't have a chance at life. No, not 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 a not a reasonable one from some no. of the sounds of it. No, I mean even from you know childhood and and on like. On April 18th, just after 11 a.m., a call comes in to the Griggs County Sheriff's Office from Dennis Haugen. Dennis is the owner of General Grain Cleaning in Karnak, North Dakota. Dennis gets a weird call that morning from the father of one of his employees. This, This father asked Dennis to tell his son to stay in town. Don't come home that day. Okay, so... Dennis, the owner. Yep. Got a call from Got a call from, a from his employee's dad. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the employee do not come home. Don't tell my kid not to come home today. Don't come home. Okay. Stay in town. Now Dennis thinks this is strange, so he reports I'm, it. I'm gonna agree with Dennis. Yeah. Good move, Dennis. Yeah. Sheriff Hendrickson. From Greg's he call, County? Yep, yep. Okay. He calls in, he calls in. That's who, who receives the call. Okay. Sheriff Hendrickson learns this information originates with a man named Rick Tesson. Now, Rick had called to ask one of his buddies, hey, where are you? Right? And, and his buddy's like, well, we're in Valley City with my family. So Rick tells this guy, stay there and don't return home to Karnak until we speak again. And so eventually... Hendrickson makes contact with Rick Tesson, gets through, gets through this. He said, she said, you know, this guy told me that. And there's some weird stuff. People are telling people to stay away from this area. Hendrickson gets Rick Tesson on the phone. Hang on a second. And I also like to point out that I've lived in North Dakota almost all my life. I mean, I call this home now. Sure. I have never heard of Karnak, North Dakota ever in my life. I'm very sorry to those, to those individuals that live near there. I apologize. I feel like I'm... There's a few know, little small towns, rural towns referenced in here that I've never heard I've, of. I've never heard of it. So anyway. So he gets Rick on the phone. And all Rick can say is that he feels like something is up at the ranch owned by Roger Kerber, which is just east of Karnak. And he had simply stopped by to inquire about buying a horse. And he had no details and hadn't actually witnessed Jansen in the area. But his gut instinct was telling him something was wrong. Hendrickson pursues the lead immediately, gathering his gear, making a call to Griggs County and to Valley City PD for backup. He also requests cell phone contact only. Orders are given not to use radios. Less than one hour after the initial call, at 11.50 a.m., Hendrickson meets with Rick Tesson. Tesson tells him that he had spoken to Diane Kerber and had learned, for a fact, that Jansen had shown up at the Kerber Ranch at 9.45 a.m. that morning and had simply walked into the house while Diane was doing dishes. And, you know, and one thing to point out, too, I mean, all law enforcement in the area is, it's it's big news when there's a, you know, it's a four-person, you know, one attempted murder, three murders. You know, it's a a big damn deal. You know, so... Greeks County, Valley City, yeah. People they're they're are, all going to be they're on, on they're it. they're all going to be on high alert. It's not like, oh, what happened yesterday? I didn't hear anything about that. You people know, people are out there ready. Yeah. I mean, and they yeah. were searching fields. Uh, I mean, the the effort to find him was they were pushing. And this is just two two and a half days later. Right. So we're it's not it's not long later. Now the Kerbers know Jansen, 
Nevertheless, they were frightened by a sudden arrival. They weren't able to talk with him and weren't being threatened. The Kerbers managed to get Scrubby out to their shop, and they encouraged him to turn himself in. That was when Rick Tesson showed up. About the horse. About the horse that morning. And Diane shooed him away along with her children. Oh, my goodness. She shooed her children away with this guy and, and, and said, hey, it's not a good time. Just come back later. I'll call you. Jansen. Wow. Yeah, it's imagine being that mom. Oh. You've got, right, shooing your children away. And, because you and think saying, that's going to be safest you. for them. Like, I'll, to I'll, leave. To yeah, leave yeah, with go, him. Absolutely. Go with this guy. Yeah. Now, Jansen is adamant to the Kerbers that he does not want to turn himself in, that he's either going to blow his brains out or death by cop. Man, why put that on somebody else? He's also detailed in his recollection of the Valley City shooting. Now, during all this, Scrubby puts his gun down along with his jacket, and Kerber delicately takes the firearm along with the ammunition and locks it in the cab of his tractor. He then makes the excuse that he has farm chores to do and leaves the shop with the gun. These, you know, this is why you trust a farmer. For sure. For a good majority of the time. It's why, you now, know. unbeknownst to Rick Tesson, Jansen had arrived just minutes prior. She tells him it was a bad time. He takes the kids away. So that's what caused Tessin to get suspicious and set off the sequence of phone calls sure. that lead to this moment. Yeah. And so, and that's when, that's when, you know, the few people in the town are like, Hey, don't come home today. Hey, don't come home today. Shit's going to happen. Don't come home today. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's, look at this little phone tree in this little town. There, a little, a little phone tree. Mm-hmm. And it was, it wasn't, nobody like knew it was Tessin's like, God, the Kerbers are being weird. No, something is wrong. Right. Something's wrong and we need to do something. Wow. That's, I hope my neighbors know me that well. So, so it's interesting that, I mean, that's, that that's why they're just, they're paying attention, right? Yeah. You know, well, it, it, things it's, are it's, out of the ordinary. It's a high alert in the yeah. whole area. It's yeah. a high alert yeah. in the whole region. Yeah. Now, knowing that, of course, Jansen had been vocal about committing suicide or dying in a gunfight with law enforcement, believing him to be armed with a, pist- a pistol, Tesson actually argues with police. He was really agitated and afraid by the idea that police would act like cowboys and turn it into a big shootout. So Hendrickson kind of had to calm him down and assure everything would be handled professionally. At 1240, a task force from Valley City arrives along with additional deputies from Barnes County. An incident command center is established at the Karnak Elevator Office. Units are deployed to areas south of the Kerber Ranch. They know Jansen is holed up on the ranch, putting everyone there at risk. At 1.05 p.m., a phone call comes in from Diane. She's scared. She wants to get out. And the time for her to escape without raising suspicion is right now. Law enforcement tells her to head out to the mailbox where Hendrickson will pick her up. When Sheriff Hendrickson arrives, Diane's husband is just coming down the road in a tractor. He joins them. The couple is overwhelmed by fear and emotion and they need time to regain their composure. Okay. So how, what, what brought, so I, I checked, I, I looked this up. It, uh, Karnak is only 28 miles from Valley City. Right. So, um, so what, you know, as they're, as they're coming along and all that stuff, great. I think, I feel like we're moving, you know, to a scary end. Why that farm? Was it just a random? Jensen? Yeah. He was, knew them. He did know them. Yeah. So yeah. It wasn't- he, he was, he was friends with them for a very long time. He was certainly part of their friend group in the, okay. pre, in the pre-meth days. Sure. And okay. he was known. So during, in the two days after his murder, 
the Kerbers had contacted law enforcement and just said, hey, he's been known to show up here. We're kind of scared that he might show up. They didn't have enough wow. agents to just leave somebody there, but right. they they were aware that it could happen, and it, it, in, it in fact did. Ooh, can you imagine yeah. the liability if, if something had happened? I don't know. Yeah, it, so Jansen is now in a loft above the shop. They know that. They've got that intel. Law enforcement establishes communication with one David Nilsson. He's a hired hand who's inside the shop right now. He tells officers Jansen is asleep upstairs in the loft. Why is he still there? To to make it look not suspicious. They were all freaked out. Well, get the F out. And and who cares if it's suspicious? (laughs) I mean, why? I don't know. They had to get out. It was spooky. Billy, don't be a hero, They're walking on eggshells in there. Oh. There's even there's even one other person in the shop who apparently, I, I, from what I could tell, had no idea any of this was even going on. So what? Yeah, law enforcement oh decides to wait for the Jamestown Tactical Unit before making entry. Nielsen has to end his call abruptly, but he promises to call back in ten minutes. The minutes tick by like an eternity. An air of anticipation permeates the property. Units are spread out all across the farm in tactical positions. When Nielsen calls back, the conversation is covertly coded with messages about what's going on inside. Nielsen is told to gather the other guy and get out of the shop. Ah, yes, I like to go fishing. Yes. Yeah, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing to the little pond over by the way, and I'm going to get the guy who doesn't know what the hell's going on with me. Like... Okay. Minutes later, oh, that the poor entry team makes their way in. The shop is quickly cleared by tactical units, and Jansen, having no weapon and being fast asleep in the loft, is arrested without incident. And you, and like you can imagine how zonked out this guy is. Oh yeah, right. I mean, he's going on adrenaline. So he's he's he was he's running through of, the fields full of drugs. Full of full full of drugs. He slept outside on some rocks one of the nights. Like it's and it's April. It's cold. Okay. He he had ditched his he had ditched his vehicle in one abandoned farmhouse. Slept in another. Slept outside. Trudged through wow. all of so it's twenty eight miles. I, I don't know exactly how far his S ten was, but it was that he he walked a long a way to get to this farm. So you've got you're, and not you're, on the you're, road. You're, you're walking through fields. Right. And stuff. So you're coming down. You know, and then. All of this stuff. So, you know, what, what is it? Uh, it's that line on um, the usual suspects, but it says always look for the guy in in jail who's sleeping, like the first night in jail, because the first the if the the person's sleeping the first night in jail, he's the guilty one because he knows he's got nothing but time. Now, Good of course, that was Kaiser Suse. So, yeah. I mean, I can't, you know, but but he's he's guilty. He knows he he thinks he's safe. He thinks he's going to be protected. He is uh, out, out. When Jansen is arrested, his left pocket is full of nine millimeter shell, nine millimeter shells. He's got 364 bucks in cash, $3.92 in coins, and some Carmex. His Chevy S10 pickup was hidden in a barn at an abandoned farm miles from this location. Detective McDonald advises Jansen of his Miranda rights and asks him if he understands them, to which Jansen replies, quote, I'm not crazy. I just snapped. Uh, so he's more pissed about being, uh, he's like, no, of course I understand them. I'm not mentally disabled. Like he he, he wants to point out, I'm not crazy. I just snapped. He's, he's then told about his carnage and, and, and the, the deaths. He's told that Buchholz survives. 
he makes an offhand comment that he wishes it would have been Barnett who survived. And if he would have known Bukholz was alive, he would have killed him. And he, in this moment, affirmed his efforts that he, he didn't care that um, Sharon and April died. Oh. He ultimately shows remorse uh, much, much later. But in this, in this, in this heat of this moment, in, yeah. In, in this instance. So and he, yeah. he initially told him that he would... They're like, well, we want to interview you when we get you to the station. He's like, yeah, I'll talk. I'll talk to you guys. But then when they got there, he asked for a lawyer right away. So then there was nothing else. But he had already sort of given, even after after his Miranda rights, had given a quote-unquote confession. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of evidence against him regardless. But right, uh, he, right. he's arrested Witnesses without incident. Stuff, so that's that's really good. Some of the trial bullet points, if you will, Jansen and his defense argue very hard that addiction and codependency combined with Sharon's suicide attempts, as well as the ongoing drug use by himself and the Hatchers was a form of extreme emotional disturbance for which there's reasonable excuse that would allow a jury to mitigate the seriousness of a homicide. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't sail. Um, it well, didn't, it didn't I work would for hope him. not. That's, and I—it's the biggest argument they made, and and he also because tried that's to, grasping at straws. The defense attorney, yep. like, come on. Yep. Wow. He, try, he tries to grasp at, at at a lot of different things. He uh, goes through a big time psyche eval and wants really hard to show that perhaps he had acted in a certain way because of all these circumstances. None of it works. He ultimately pleads guilty to the murders. And he gets the three pleads guilty to three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder. The sentences all run consecutive. Like other highlights, Paul Bukholz pleads. He pleads the fifth. He had uh, no comment regarding any of the alleged drug use or the stash of packaged meth found at the Hatcher residence. Diane Kerber, in an interview, uh, would later refer to Jansen as one of the kindest most generous giving individuals that you're ever going to find until he has some meth and a codependent relationship apparently right so there are there are people who put blame at the feet of the people who introduced meth into Jansen's life and from other other sources that I had in Valley City said that before before the meth and a potentially toxic relationship Dan, Daniel Jansen was a, a pretty well-liked guy and well-known mm-hmm. and meth, meth yeah. ruined him and a bad relationship ruined him. And it, it, it's just no, a terrible, terrible, it, terrible. Yeah. It doesn't, it does not, it, it's, it sucks. I mean, there yeah. were, there are, you know, there are more victims in this, right? You know, and drugs are not a victimless crime, you know, and, and it's, not at it's, all. um, and so I, I get that, but, and I can, I understand putting the blame at you know the at the feet of the people who introduced him to meth okay but that's we're still human beings and all that stuff and we still we still have free will yep. so yep. Uh, that only goes so far you can say that the whole methamphetamine epidemic and the the you know the hold that it has yeah that can be to blame absolutely but you can't you can't um oh that bugs me Records do seem to indicate the Hatcher residence was part of an ongoing drug investigation. Of course, of course it was. 
Uh, and ultimately, Jansen's extensive gun collections, uh, more than 76 guns, which included rare weapons from World War II, Vietnam, and more, was auctioned off and used to pay restitution. There was a lot of back and forth in the courts about what would happen to his collection. Yeah, he, they had to have a fire he, sale. He, Yeah, he they had a big auction for it. He tried to get all of his possessions pushed over to one of his friends or family members, somebody that was going to manage his business and affairs. Didn't work. So, yeah, he's uh, he's got consecutive life sentences. He'll never see uh, the free light of day again. Yeah, that's, it's too. It's it. This is this was brutal. It, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. A, it hit a lot harder reading it here with you today yeah. than in yeah. the precipitating research. Sources for this episode. This episode is predominantly comprised from BCI case files and court transcripts. Additional sources. New York Times, PBS.org, DrugAbuse.gov, SAMHSA.gov, Statista.com, TheRecoveryVillage.com, Justice.gov, and ThePeopleOfHistory.com. Folks, this is Midwest Murder. Remember, come for the Midwest. Stay